Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Our special guest on today's show is Jerry Fu. He's the founder and owner of Adapting Leaders, who specializes in leadership development, diversity, equity and inclusion, and specifically conflict resolution for the Asian American community. But before we get a chance to speak with Jerry, it's a Leadership Hacker News. Imagine after working decades building up your career, and you've reached a pinnacle of success and now become the CEO of a fast-growing company. It must be a great feeling. Then, out of nowhere, pandemic surges across the world. There's not enough time to save at the moment as that new CEO, as COVID hits through your organisation. Well, that was a situation that Raul Villar Jr., the CEO of Paycor, found himself in. With COVID cases spreading, followed by Delta and of course Omicron, Villar didn't have much time to save his new position and had to act quickly in the face of uncertainty and chaos. To bravely move forward, instead of being paralysed by fear, leaders need to set forth clear priorities and guidance. We've all come to understand and know that. Paco is a 30-year-old global leader in human capital management and offers HR software for leaders across the globe. Their platform serves about 40,000 medium-small businesses. But what sets them apart is their leadership and focus to their employees. In a recent article shared with Forbes, he did exactly what he said he would do when he set out, and that was to one, keep his employees safe. And it's a lesson in empathetic leadership. His first priority was taking care of his staff's safety, as well as their emotional and mental well-being. Underpinned with strong leadership. Strong managers, coaches and mentors, directors and VPs all make the appreciable difference in improving employee engagement and retention, job satisfaction and internal mobility. He goes on to say they're all critical to help enhance employees' happiness. It only takes a few bad leaders to ruin a firm's reputation and drive workers to leave. Of course, in this current stage, in this time, really hard to recruit replacements. He simply concludes that story by saying, if we want employees to have better lives, we have to give them better leadership. In a recent study that I saw with McKinsey & Co., they found that relationship with management is the top factor not only for employees' job satisfaction, but for the second most determinant overall, which is their well-being. When it comes down to it, managers have an outsized impact on two universal qualities of a productive culture. Psychological safety, as no one feels motivated by fear, and good work organisation where everyone knows their value and enjoys that area of autonomy or self-reliance. Villa and his management team provided employees with a sense of control over their lives, creating a transparent and fair workplace, and continuously motivates and inspires their personnel. And in a time that lacks future clarity, he feels it's really important to provide people with a sense of control over their work and their lives. In the same article he said, it's different for everyone, 
and we respect that. Some people may decide that working from home is the best option and there may be people who desire to come into the office from time to time and break up that monotony. It's important to offer transparency about what's happening and the direction the company is heading. He established real routine time dialogues with employees listening to what they have to say and then acting upon their feedback to make the necessary improvements. During the tough, frightening times, the job of a CEO is to continually motivate, inspire and lead by example. And it's flexibility that makes people feel autonomous and in control of their day. So that's been the Leadership Hacker News. If you find stories, insights from wherever they're from, please share them with us and we'll share them with our listeners. Joining me on today's show is Dr. Jerry Fu. Jerry is the founder and owner of Adapting Leaders, specializing in helping Asian American professionals who want to get better at their leadership, specifically with helping them with conflict resolution. Jerry, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you on the show. You bring an enormous amount of experience and an enormous amount of leadership perspective that we're really looking forward to get into. But before we do that, we always like to give our audience an opportunity to get to know you a bit better. Tell us a bit about Jerry. Uh, yeah, I, um, I love uh, traveling. Um, I remember when I did a, a school rotation in Dublin, Ireland, and I, that's what gave me the travel bug to see more of the world. And um, I love salsa dancing. That has been uh, a hobby I never would have expected for myself, but has become one that has uh, just consumed my life in such a great way. And uh, I love trying new food. And so Houston is the most affordable multicultural city uh, you, anyone could ask for. So it's right. fun uh, to try any kind of new restaurant you could think about trying. Awesome. And tell us a bit about the man behind the business. How did you kick off your professional career and where did it lead you? Yeah, yeah. So I have a, this healthcare lineage in my family. Um, my grandpa practiced in Taiwan as a doctor for over 50 years, you know, several of my uncles are involved as physicians. And I even grew up with two cousins, uh, both of whom went to Harvard and then went to med school. So the bar was set pretty high when I was. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then, um, so I, but I, I didn't have the bug for myself. It was just more of a cultural default to say, hey, you want to be a doctor too, right, Jerry? And I said, well, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> you know, I don't really have any other interest. Nothing had really you know, struck me early on in life to say, okay, this is definitely what I want to do the rest of my life. In contrast, I, I have a, a best friend from high school who uh, wanted to be a pediatrician from a young age. He was great with kids, loved being around them, loved serving them. And you know, he has a, a growing... Um, clinical practice uh, where he is now. And, you know, that's wonderful to see. But for me, um, you know, I, I grew up in a home where my mom protected me from a lot of stress and anxiety because, you know, she's my mom. She loves me. She doesn't want me worrying about things that I have no control over. But the challenge with that is that when I moved away for college, right, uh, I began to face challenges. I didn't have the discipline to challenge. Uh, to face and and actually work through. And I say this because eventually that got me a C in organic chemistry. And so, you know, I had never experienced failure to that level before. And, you know, I, in my mind, like my med school dreams were over, right? I was just like, yeah. nope, don't know how this is going to work. So let me just, uh, let me just, you know, remove the possibility of the shame that could happen if I were waitlisted or rejected from med school. So, um, well, I still want to do healthcare. What else could I consider doing? And so I said, well, pharmacy seems pretty good. So let me uh, 
apply to pharmacy school and convince pharmacy school that I would make a good pharmacist. And so, you know, my, my grades just decent enough to give them a chance. And so uh, went to pharmacy school, finished pharmacy school, but that was where my life took a, another challenge and conflict because, you know, my now I'm in my mid twenties and my mom decided that she needed to step in to make sure my life was on track with what she felt was successful. This involved two main things. Number one, working for the chain pharmacy she thought would be the safest career choice. And number two, marrying a girl that she had set me set up for me, um, you know, that she pulled from her network of, of Asian uh, parents. So um, I was, you know, I'd moved back home. She, I let her convince me that moving back home and working for this chain pharmacy, I wasn't excited about working for, um, you know, was somehow the best option. And then I just, it, I realized that was almost like a strategy tactic because if I, she convinced me to move home, not only could she be uh, a, a louder voice in my life, uh, then she could really push me to marry this girl. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, uh, and, you know, even though my mom had never worked a day in her life in pharmacy, you know, mom's no best. So here we yep. go. Right. And so um, I had this very fixed mindset about leadership, about conflict and about just life um, journeys in general. Right. Where I felt like, you know, it was it was key in my 20s to to make sure I worked for the best company or married the best girl or anything else like that, because if I started off poorly, right? Somehow that would just kind of lock me into other things. And so when I felt like I was locked into um, working for this company and marrying this girl, you know, I was just really not happy with where my life was, you know, and um, went through just this, you could say self-pity phase where, you know, I was living at home, I was making good money, I was using the money I would have spent on rent to travel and, and take some fun trips. And, you know, that was a nice, you know, side benefit, but you know, I, I wasn't happy. Uh, the one time, one stretch I was happy while I was living at home working for this chain pharmacy was uh, when I worked for a store that had really flexible scheduling. All of a sudden, I was able to you know travel a lot more, do a lot of my own, more of my own thing, and I knew how rare that was. Um, and so I was scared to leave it. And so when it went away anyway, after you know I had to reshuffle my schedule and do other things, I ended up at another store which was much busier. And, um, you know, I was unhappy again because I had lost that autonomy over my schedule. And it took a really, really ugly customer service incident um, 11 years ago in January that just said, okay, I, I can't stay here any longer. I have to find another job. And so the problem with that is that, you know, I wasn't working on my career at all. I was just content to work for this chain pharmacy as long as I was doing better than 70% of my workflow and my staff. Um, another pharmacist, you know, my boss was happy with my effort. And so, you know, I, I didn't work on my career. So when I wanted to get into teaching pharmacy students, you know, I didn't have much of a resume to stand on for a conventional university job. But one of my friends who works for a pharmacy consulting company here in Houston told me, hey, you know, uh, I got promoted. My previous teaching position is available. Uh, would you like to apply for it? I said, oh, absolutely. You know, so I get the interviews. I convince them that we're taking a chance on. All of a sudden, I am taking this part-time teaching job over a full-time job with benefits, which, of course, my mom did not respond to well. <laughs> you yeah. know, and so I knew though I I I wanted to do this and head in this direction. So I'm moving to Houston from Tennessee, where I was living at the time, 
And, uh, you know, I had some local friends to help me get settled in Houston fairly quickly. So that was nice. But I realized quickly um, I was in over my head after the initial honeymoon phase was over. There are some big assignments that my boss had trusted me to handle, um, which is mainly writing new test questions. Um, and I, for whatever reason, either I got writer's block or mismanaged my time. But ultimately, I I didn't want to admit that I was in over my head because I, I didn't manage my time or anything like that. And so I was still in this mindset that somehow if I told my boss, you know, a good enough reason as to why I didn't get the job done, like that somehow she would understand. And uh, unfortunately, the day before the the first exam where I was supposed to have new test questions, she saw the exam and needed to come in early and just rehash everything because she's like, this is well below, you know, the standard that I, you know, had expected from you. And I realized quickly, right? Like your boss isn't paying you to tell you stories as to why you didn't get the job done. Your boss wants you to get the job done. But, you know, that was not um, a lesson I, I could embrace until much later. But anyway, mm -hmm. I say this to say, you know, this set a, a bad precedent for me and she struggled uh, to trust me after that. And so eventually, and after enough rope, uh, 11 months later, I got fired. And, um, you know, that was just a, a tough wake up call I didn't appreciate at the time. And, you know, for me still dealing with the failure and the shame and the embarrassment of, you know, wasting this opportunity at a company that a lot of my friends coveted, uh, or, you know, respected. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, what am I, what am I going to do? And so that's where the, the roller coaster career for my career took a really bad turn where I ended up at an independent pharmacy job, uh, house of cards where I, my, four of my paycheck bounce, uh, filling for crooked doctors. And, you know, after the first check bounce, actually my boss, you know, owned up to it and was like, Hey, you know, something happened. Sorry about that. We'll, we'll make up for it. But here's the problem, Steve, is that, um, I didn't have a local bank account. Right. I never bothered setting one up. And so I was mailing my checks home and, you know, when checks two, three and four bounced, right. Um, you know, and my boss eventually said, Hey, uh, we've having some more problems, uh, you know, and I checked with my mom, you know, I said, you know, can you tell me what happened with these checks? She goes, oh, yeah, these checks were all returned, but I, I, I was just too afraid to tell you. And it's just like, no, like, this is not how you handle bad news, right? Exactly, um, yeah. If, if a patient has cancer, you don't tell them, well, I can't afford to tell him he has cancer because then, you know, that's that would be, you know, terrible. It's like, no, he needs to know so he knows how to treat it, yeah. right? So anyway. Um, in my own conflict aversion still, right? Um, I, I was, I felt like I was bad at conflict. I wasn't ever going to get good at it. So anytime someone confronted me or was upset with me, I just needed to, you know, take the path of least resistance. And so, you know, what do you do with the bus is, you know, clearly ripping you off, right? And so after nine months of back and forth and trying to chase down as much of the shorted money as I could before finally quitting, um, you know, my friends got me on with a different or a legitimate company, but money was really tight. And so they said, Hey, we can't pay you more than eight hours a week. And I said, "Uh Oh, so what do you, you know, suggest I do? And they said, well, you can cover for at our Austin location, which is about two and a half hours away. Um, and you know, you can get more hours that way. And I said, okay. And so I'm driving out to Austin with no idea what my life is going to look like. And people will tell me, Hey, Jerry, you could end up in worse cities. And I said, yeah, technically, but it just didn't feel like home at this point. Right. And so this summer, this is 2012 now, this was the summer that some friends of mine who run a pharmacy leadership nonprofit uh, contacted me and said, hey, you know, uh, one of our facilitators had to back out for a national meeting. Would you be interested in stepping in? And, you know, these are friends I'd made over a couple of years. I said, oh, I love them so much. And so I said, absolutely, I want to step in and, and help out. And so 
teaching leadership uh, kind of unlocked some possibilities in my head because before I said, wow, leadership is hard. The few times I've tried it, it was, I wasn't really that great at it. I don't know if I'll ever be good at it. And so now I was asking myself, well, what if I could be a good leader? You know, what would that look like? What kind of work would that involve? How would I care myself? And so that fall, I had the opportunity to either stay in Austin part-time, which was a great work team, or take on a, a full-time manager position in Houston that had opened up. And I said, okay, um, I can't be scared. I can't stay safe. I have to take on this challenge. I'm ready to come back to Houston. So yeah, let me take on this challenge. It's a great story. And what I'm, what I'm noticing it, it, as you're describing it though, Jerry, right, is this whole yeah. journey of mindset that shifts mm -hmm. for you yeah. on this exploration. Yeah. What happened next? Oh, I got written up again. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I had, you know, technicians who were not pulling their weight and, you know, being, you know, causing a lot of problems. And, you know, again, in my conflict aversion, right? So leadership, I was able to, but then the specific area of conflict resolution, I was still struggling with. And so, you know, again, trying to be gracious, but, um, you know, the management said, hey, you know, yes, their behavior is a problem and your unwillingness to discipline them or even fire them is also a problem. So, you know, you're kind of in the doghouse again. Um, we're going to put you on a performance improvement plan and things. And of course, you know, all my friends around me are saying, you got to own up. You, you know, we're not going to, if you just want pity, that's not going to help you with the situation. So you got to own up to what you got to do and, um, you know, what, what, what you have, what you have to work on. So I managed to get out of the doghouse, right? It's a company or right around the time the company had their funding pulled. Um, basically the owners at that point felt like, uh, the pharmacy model was no longer viable. So they just decided to pull out. And so my, I was still looking to, to quit and move on, but so that didn't change things. It just made it a little more urgent. And so, uh, I managed to land on my feet only because I have leadership experience on my resume. Now they sell, you know, they told me, Hey, you know, this is, we're interviewing you because you have leadership experience on your resume. And so I tell people, you know, leadership saved my career in that I got more job options. Um, that next job, you know, uh, unfortunately didn't last very long. The revenue model was not sustainable for smaller pharmacies that actually offer a higher quality of life. Incidentally, along the way, I had to fire a technician who had gotten pregnant after I'd hired her. And that was, um, that was tough because, when the clinic that I was working with was not happy with her. And then, you know, they told my boss and my boss said, Hey, look, you got to handle it. And I knew that if I did not fire her, that I would lose my job too. And so that was the main impetus for saying, okay, mm -hmm. I gotta, I gotta fall in this grenade. Right. So anyway, the next couple of years, I managed to land on with another company that I liked a lot, you know, they had good benefits, good hours. And I was hoping that would be the last company I ever had to work for. And Again, you realize, you know, these smaller pharmacies that offer high quality of life don't last long in the pharmacy landscape. And so when that company went under four years ago, um, I told myself, well, you know, I'm tired of dealing with insurance companies. I'm tired of trying to chase doctors for scripts, but I love teaching these leadership workshops, which I've done consistently since 2012. What would a career in leadership coaching and facilitating look like? You know, what kind of work would that involve? And so I proceed to ask some friends who are in this space and, you know, I'm still scared of failing rejection. So I don't actually start anything, you know, not for real. And I tell people, Steve, that it took a pandemic for me to kind of wake up and say, <laughs> hey, well, you know, how much longer am I going to wait? Right. You know, and 
and so yeah last october filed the llc got the website up opened the bank account and you know, it's still, uh, you still got to hustle, right? Of course, yeah. Uh, the world doesn't owe you success just because you decide to put some skin in the game. <laughs> and so... You, you, you're, you're spot on, Jerry, but actually there is no substitute for hard work. And what I do know right. about you is you are incredibly hardworking and focused, right? Thank you. Yeah, first time we met was like 2 a.m. in Houston, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's the kind of guy you are. You're prepared to go above and beyond in order for us to have that conversation because it was important to you yes and you know what i do know about you is that while you still might bump into some of that fixed mindset stuff the growth mm-hmm. mindset is massively dominating your future and and i yes. suspect that's what what helps you get to where you get to now right absolutely it has to and the the fact that uh you would need to keep growing uh is is really the opportunity there so, because i think there's some myth that somehow if you have enough of growth mindset mindset that somehow you could just stop and say okay now i can hit cruise control and as uh david allen says in his book getting things done with personal development he says the better you get the better you'd better get <laughs> and so yeah. it's like wait it doesn't end it's like oh it doesn't get easier it's like well in a way it does but only so you can handle you know, bigger challenges, right? Right. It's the start of something for you. Having a growth mindset just gives you the permissions Mm -hmm. to explore, to find things, to learn more. But then you still have to do something with what you learn, what you find, what you've explored. Otherwise, you bump into that fixed mindset holding you back. Mm -hmm. So what was the point that you thought, right, I'm definitely onto something here now, and specifically with the Asian American community that you work with a lot. When was that kind of defining moment that you thought, yeah, I've definitely got something here? Yeah, yeah, great question. I saw something when I landed my technically my first paying client. Um, I I met my first client, or you know, through uh, the church that I used to go to. Uh, another, he was a, he's a Chinese guy, um, you know, similar background. You know, his parents came over from from a different country, and he was recognizing that hey, you know, um, a stable nine to five job only goes so far. And maybe I need to take on some leadership challenges. So he actually left Houston to take on a, a, a job in a different city that he felt like that would give him a higher quality of life and, you know, not just give him a boring nine to five and, you know, or a toxic work culture. Um, and he realized quickly he needed to uh, improve. And so when I was first trying to test out my coaching, you know, I said, Hey, you know, try me out six months for free just cause I need to get better at this. And, you know, this way uh, you have some level of help. And so after six months I said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm ready to start charging. Are you on board with this? And he's like, yeah, you know, are you willing to give me a discount if I commit to a year of coaching? And I said, well, absolutely. <laughs> so um, that's when I knew I was on to something. And then same thing with my second client. Um, you know, she was dealing with her own challenges at work. And so when I helped her navigate a really difficult conversation with, with her very temperamental, passive aggressive boss, after he blew up at her, you know, trying to restore things. Um, yeah, I knew that this is a problem that, you know, a lot of Asians don't want to admit that they, that they struggle with, right? Like we, I know how private, and prideful I was about my own challenges to, to deal with things and, you know, have this image that I have to maintain that. No, no, no. Like I I'm tough enough. I should be able to do it on my own. Right. And then you realize, you know, well, how's that working for you? Right. Just to, you know, to be, be too proud to ask for help when you know, you need help. Right. Um, yeah. And so 
yeah, uh, still trying to figure out how exactly to help other Asians, more Asians realize, hey, you know, it's okay to say you don't have it all together. Like, it's okay to say, hey, you know, like you're dealing with some challenges and struggling to find your own solution for them. And yeah, you know, happy to get a solution that's more within your preferred budget <laughs> if that's what yeah. it comes down to. So yeah, sure. I, I know, I know I'm onto something there because I think a lot of, a lot of Asians are dealing with that, whether it's, you know, temperamental bosses or parental expectations about, you know, how their life should go. Um, or even just within themselves to say, Hey, you know, what I grew up hearing isn't jiving right now. Um, yeah. you know, how do I, what do I need to do differently so that I'm actually charting a course for myself in my own life that I know I would be more satisfied with. Yeah. And there's no question, of course, that having that experience of being born in a Asian community and living with some of the things that people like, you know, white Caucasian guys like me just will not get <laughs> is absolutely going to be a massive strength to those conversations that I just couldn't empathize with, with, with mm. the greatest respect as a great coach, I could do my absolute damnedest to mm. explore and develop and understand with deep empathy and, and respect, but I still wouldn't be able to get it like you would. Right. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, there's, on one hand, you know, I think the joke or not joke, but the interesting thing in coaching is either you want someone with completely fresh eyes that has no frame of reference. You know, I think there's some merit there. And at the same time, you know, what better person to help you navigate a path when they, you know, have the same skin, right? And they have the same yeah. eyes and perspective that you have because they've dealt with the same racial taunts or, you know, familial stress and, and you know, prideful culture that you know we've we've held on to for so long and i definitely think there's something about having a fresh set of eyes and perspective mm -hmm. but as part of a intimate coaching relationship there will mm -hmm. be things that naturally spark off for you that mm -hmm. would never even enter my subconscious right yeah yeah, yeah. no i'm happy to you know i'm just a little further down the path i skinned my knee a couple of times and you know as much as you could learn from skinning your own knee the same way. Why, why don't I spare you some of that? Right? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And in talking of skinning your own knee, what it seems to me, Jerry, is that those experiences you shared earlier around not facing into some of the conflict, not facing into some of the challenges that you had are really core elements of the learning that you've now applied in the work that you do now, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the biggest catalyst for me recognizing I need to get better was admitting that the cost of not dealing with the situation is worse than messing up and failing at, you know, engaging the situation. Right. And then also to recognize, Hey, you know what, even if I fail, it's better than not doing anything. And then also, you know, the paradox is, okay, let me just not settle for, well, at least I tried. It's like, okay, let me really study this and improve this so that I give myself the best chance of success every single time I engage. So from your perspective, are there some common traits that cause conflict in the first place? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I think the first thing is just uh, mismanaged expectations, right? That's usually the easiest conflict to, to realize, right? It's just, hey, I was expecting you to show up on time. You showed up 30 minutes late. Okay, now we have a conflict. Done, right? That's, that was, that's the first simple conflict. The second conflict I'll see is, you know, expectations for myself and my own path versus expectations that others have for me. Right. Um, that's, a, that's another one. Uh, cultural expectations, right. When just in like social circles, right. When um, 
I remember in high school, like a, a classmate came over and he didn't take his shoes off um, because he just didn't know. But I was too afraid to tell him, hey, you need to take your shoes off, you know, before coming in. And now I have to deal with the conflict, right? He doesn't, he's not even aware of this unless right. I told him, right? Um, and then, you know, there's, there's healthy conflict, right? The current version of you versus the future version of you um, or business conflict, right? What makes us money now may not make us five money in five years from now, right? Um, or even within healthy business cultures, right? Uh, morale and results usually, you know, are on opposite sides. And then, you know, innovation and systems usually don't you know, pair up well. Right? Because innovation says, hey, we got to look for new stuff and systems say, well, you know, we're, we're, this is how we're built to handle money now. Right. So, yeah, yeah um, those are the most frequent conflicts that I see. You mentioned very briefly there around conflict could be positive. Mm -hmm. Most conflict happens in that part of the limbic system that we try to deal with that whole mm -hmm. fight, flight, freeze and pee situation. And that's typically <laughs> where you get an emotional re response. So how can conflict be positive in that sense? I mean, conflict tells you that something has to change. Right. I'll give a I'll give a specific example from from my work uh, leadership lab in a way. <laughs> so um, my lead technician, we'll call her Denise. Uh, she for the longest time, um, she would just show up late, chronically late. And one of my other technicians who is consistently punctual uh, is very upset at this. But Emily, this punctual technician, right, Emily doesn't handle conflict well. And because she's, uh, you know, she's a harmonizer. She wants to get along with people. She doesn't like it when people dislike her for things. And so she's just quietly frustrated with Denise's uh, tardiness. And one day on our group text, right, Denise, uh, Emily, sorry, Emily uh, says, oh, you know, basically, you know, Denise was late again. And so Emily is just texting all these really passive aggressive texts on, on, on our thread. And it's like, Okay, <laughs> you know this is this is a problem, right? Uh, because when it starts to spill over into these kinds of messages, it's like, okay, now we have a conflict, right? And so the conflict really revealed a lot of good things that we needed to work on, right? That was the that was the good uh, of conflict because Denise realizes, okay, my tardiness is affecting my team's ability to focus and get things done, and you know Emily is recognizing, oh, like holding this in is not healthy, right? Um, she's not going to change until I say something to her. At least, you know, I, I don't have a chance of seeing how she'll respond unless I say something to her. And so even though this is an unhealthy conflict because it is, it reveals a lack of, you know, empathy for the other person and just uh, an unawareness of the consequences of my own selfishness in this case for either woman, um, you know, this was the catalyst for both of them to realize it's like, okay, Denise, like, if you don't want her to start passively, aggressively communicating with you, you need to step up your game, show up on time. And Emily, you know, if you're upset, go ahead and say so. Like, we don't want you holding that in. What are the kind of main reasons that people don't just air it when it's fresh for them? You know, first time out, mm -hmm. an incident occurs. Mm -hmm. I feel that. Um, but what, so what is that kind of fundamental reason that we just don't let it out so early? Hmm. Oh. I mean, I know for me, it's, it's this fear of antagonizing the other person. Like they're like, I'm just going to throw them on the defensive. If I, if I confront them about something that I think is problematic. 
Um, because I, I guess part of it is just when, the way people have dealt with conflict with me when they just, you know, send this really polite email heading like, Hey, right. And then you open the email and then they just blast you with everything you did wrong. Right. And so, yeah, number one is just the desire to be liked. I think it's just, they just say, well, if they, you know, if I bring this thing up, they won't like me anymore. Yeah. And then even worse is that. Uh, you bring it up in a way that shows you're scared to bring this up with them, which is, you know, almost just as insulting as just not wanting to talk about it with them. Right. <laughs> I can see that actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's ironic. I never really thought of it in that way that you can physically see the nonverbal communication happening way before, can't you? <laughs> that somebody, somebody's been stewing on this situation or the event mm -hmm. and now they're going to have a conversation, but they're dreading it. Mm -hmm. You can see it all over their face often, can't you? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you die a thousand yeah. deaths before you ever get stabbed, right? And one of the things that comes back to your earlier observations was all of this is mindset. Mm -hmm. You know, the fear of I'm not going to do that is a mindset, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The the assumptions that we make yes. about how people respond to us mm -hmm. is, a, is a mindset. Mm -hmm. And actually often when you get it out there, it's nothing like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So talk us through a little bit about the work you've been doing recently. So I know you have your downloadable version of the framework that you've got. I think we really need just to spin through how that might help our leaders listening to this. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, in, in trying to expand, uh, you know, the help that I can offer potential clients or anyone really who's curious about my business. Uh, yeah. Have this great guide that uh, details a framework uh, that on how to handle hard conversations, because basically I took some, you know, material from references and books that, you know, friends introduced to me. And then I kind of, you know, put my own spin on it, my own spices in the, in, in the, you know, common recipe, if you, if you uh, want to use one analogy. So yeah, the five steps for handling hard conversations, uh, according to me, <laughs> number one you have to imagine what a successful conversation would sound like. And yeah. um, too often, right, I know what I do in conflict to say, well, you know, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm just going to go in there. And I guess, you know, even if it goes poorly, well, and it's like, you don't have to settle for that, right? You can, maybe the conversation can go easy, right? You can just say, hey, can you stop, like, you know, leaving your dirty dishes in the sink? And they say, oh, yeah, sorry about that. Maybe it could be that easy, right? But you don't know. Um, unless you imagine that, Hey, maybe this is successful and kind of like to my point about being a good leader, you give yourself permission to succeed at something, right? Uh, Hey, maybe I could actually be good at this. Uh, number two is to find 10 seconds of courage to set things in motion, whether it's, um, sending that email or sending that text or picking up the phone, right? People think, Oh, I need to be more courageous. I need to feel like Superman or Wonder Woman. And it's like, if you wait until you feel like you have enough courage, like you'll never do it. <laughs> or even worse, you know, you wait three months, six months, and, you know, now all this damage is continuing to go. Like this fire is still, you know, eating up all of this property. And it's like, well, I'm not, you know, ready to deal with that yet. It's like, well, but it's still causing problems, right? So you just need to stretch yourself for 10 seconds to kind of set things in motion and lock the gate behind you so you can't back out, right? And that's, that's kind of help you force yourself forward. Uh, number three is to script your critical moves, right? So don't just think about, um, you know, what you need to include. Go ahead and write it down, right? Because if things are rattling around in your head, 
uh, it's, you're not going to remember everything in the moment. So go ahead and write things down, um, you know, organize it into a logical flow and make sure this way you can address things impartially. Uh, number four, though, is to rehearse those critical moves, right? Uh, rehearse in front of a mirror, record yourself on your phone, get some friends to role play with you. Make sure that you train in the dojo before fighting on the street, right? Make sure you right. practice that courage. And then step five, do it. You know, you've done the homework, you set things in motion, you, you practiced, and the cost of, of backing out now is too high. So just follow through and, you know, yeah, learn from it. Make sure you say, hey, how could I do that better? But um, those are the five steps. Also, of course, by just mapping out those steps and stages as you just described mm -hmm. will help unlock that growth mindset that we need mm -hmm. to be effective in that moment. Yeah. So we're going to flip the coin and turn the tables a little bit now, Jerry. We're sure. going to dive into your leadership experience, of which you've had not only the ability of leading teams, but have had the opportunity to coach great leaders too. Mm -hmm. So I want you to dive in if you can and just try and get to our top three leadership hacks from you. What would they be? Yeah, yeah. Oh, great, great question. So top three leadership hacks. Um, number one. Yeah, kind of like what we referred to earlier, saying, hey, what's the cost of not doing anything, right? Um, so uh, to do that, just to say, hey, 10 seconds of courage. You don't have to wait until you're ready. Just just start doing things, right? Try something, learn, adjust, and then repeat, repeat the cycle, right? And yeah, what's the smallest amount of change I could do right now that I would feel okay with doing, right? Just shrink something down into a manageable step, much like Atomic Habits says or... David Allen says, you know, what's the next action? So yeah, the first leadership hack, what's the, what's the minimum viable action you can do, right? Uh, number two, leadership hacks. I mean, learning is big. And so for me, I, I download audiobooks through uh, an app called Libby. Uh, lets you down, uh, lets you rent audiobooks and eBooks for free through whatever library uh, you have access to. And then I listen to them on 1.25 speed and, uh, you know, learning, right? is the second leadership hack and then finding ways to make learning fun um, and, and to make, and to be opportunistic with that. Right. Cause I haven't had as much time to read physical books as I used to, but the next best thing is to listen to books while I'm you know in the car or I have other moments of dead time. So that would be the yeah. second leadership hack I would say. And then third leadership hack, ask meaningful questions um, because questions are, are what helped me, um, shine the flashlight on important things I want other people to address. And it feels much less pushy uh, when you're trying to motivate someone to think a little differently. Um, and when, if you help people realize things for themselves, then, you know, it's a lot easier than me just telling them what I think they should be. At the heart of every great coach, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So the next part of the show, we call it hack to attack. So this okay. is where something hasn't worked out well. Maybe it's been pretty catastrophic, but the event itself has now caused some learning and that learning serves you well. What would be your hack to attack? <laughs> um, I'll give a situation from, from my current job. When I, when I first started, um, I brought on a technician from my previous company who was one of a, a lead technician, but it turns out it was just because she had the title didn't mean people respected her. And, um, you know, when I brought her on, I, we realized too late that, you know, she wasn't a good fit for the company, basically. Uh, you know, she was, 
she was willing to undercut her teammates anytime she made a mistake because she was too afraid of looking incompetent and she didn't want to lose her job. And so, um, even though she wasn't lead technician now, she was, you know, still acting like she was and just causing a lot of problems that she just didn't want to admit to. And so, you know, my, my attempts to write her up and discipline her, you know, didn't go well. And it wasn't, I mean, this went on for like a year and a half before we finally um, said, okay, we can't do this anymore. Like, and so, yeah, I mean, those failings, that was probably like, I don't want to admit how much we set our company back because I was just too afraid to engage Um, because she knew how to deflect. She knew how to bite back. And then we just realized, Hey, you know, even if this is true, like we're still in charge. And if we're not happy with her performance, it's still up to us to push her out the door. Yeah. And so this set a, a, a tough precedent because, you know, we didn't entirely build up a bulletproof case, even though we have more than enough evidence, we just didn't line it up properly. And so when she filed for unemployment, uh, the workforce commission ruled in her favor because we, you know, didn't line up uh, all our ducks in a row. And so I say this because this said, um, you know, this was a, a good lesson because when it happened again with another employee, you know, we just realized, okay, it doesn't matter how much, you know, this employee refutes our story. We, it's still up to us to write her up. And so sure enough, you know, after we, after we, you know, hit the last straw with her, uh, you know, we made sure that we had a, a strong case. And so when she tried to file for unemployment, she was denied. And I say this not out of like satisfaction. I'm just happy that we protected the company from, you know, people that were draining its resources. And a lesson learned, of course, otherwise you'd have repeated the same mistakes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, that was, that was more satisfying, even though it was exhausting both times. I can imagine it's never, it's never an easy thing to do, but it's a byproduct of managing performance and people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the last bit of the show today is we get a chance mm-hmm. to give you a bit of time travel. You get to bump into Jerry at 21 and give him some mm-hmm. advice. So what would your words of wisdom be to Jerry at 21? Yeah, I would, I would tell him three things. I think number one, it's okay for people to disagree with you. Um, you know, if you like something and they start to badmouth it, you don't have to be the hero and prove them wrong. Like, if you like what you like and you know why you like it, it's okay if other people don't like it. <laughs> so yeah. just be more secure in that regard. Uh, number two would be, it's okay to say no, you know, don't people please. Like if you're honestly not excited about doing something, don't do it. And you know, it's, an, it's a lesson I still need to remind myself today, actually <laughs> just say, Hey, uh, it's, it's okay to say no to things. Uh, and then number three, I would say explore more. Because for the longest time, I'll tell you this, Steve, this is, this is a funny moment. I remember I basically got funneled into a, a German uh, language learning program, uh, you know, when I was in middle school. And so because I'd already learned German in, in middle school, I just continued it through high school. I remember after going through a tough lesson or getting a bad grade on a test, I just said, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, when am I ever going to use this? Steve, I've met so many great German people, like everywhere I've traveled. Yeah. And the number of, and even worse, like the number of cute German girls that, you know, I'll meet. And it's just like, even if I have no shot of dating them, I could just see God just like, you know, talking to me and looking at me going, I tried, I tried like to expand your perspective. And, you know, it took a while for me to really appreciate, oh, wow, global perspective is amazing. Yeah. And there's just a, a big great world out there to explore and learn from and really embrace. And so, yeah, I would tell myself, Hey, you know, you don't have to 
as much as you like video games, you know, maybe there's something better out there for you. And in the big, diverse global world we have, we're so lucky that we have 94 countries that listen to our show. And therefore, we want to make sure we can connect you with those and that audience too, Jerry. So when we're finished today, where's the best place we can send them? Yeah, yeah. Um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, but the best place to go to connect and where all the free goodies are is my website, which is www.adaptingleaders.com. In addition to the free uh, guide that you can download, you can schedule a complimentary 30-minute call. You can also check out the blog where I summarize um, useful and interesting leadership books and offer other life hacks um, You know that may, may be useful to you. And let's let the leadership hacking continue and we'll make sure that we connect our audience with you and all of those links, Jerry, will be in our show notes. Great. Thanks so much, Steve. It's been awesome talking. You know, I'm absolutely convinced that the whole approach to conflict resolution is something that we're going to look back in 10 years and you are going to be one of those global experts because you bring a really neat and simple perspective on something that is really quite uncomfortable and challenging. So I just wanted to say thank you for being on our podcast. Thanks for being part of our community, Jerry. Oh, thanks, Steve. I'm so happy I stayed up till 2 a.m. To, <laughs> to, to finally meet with you because had I could have, right? I could have just said, you know what? No, not. I'm not willing to do that and uh, to have this meaningful conversation with you and to know that uh, we're giving so much benefit and useful information to your audience is, uh, is humbling and exciting. Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate it. All right. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.